Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. We are here aboard Mighty Sparrow, which is on land, which definitely feels pretty good. It's uh, kind of an interesting change up from the past uh, since November, I guess, but yeah, it's the end of the season, and we did the wrap-up show, we did all that, and since now we are entering May, May is Mental Awareness Month, and I figured, you know, maybe it's time we dive a little bit deep into the mind and the mental challenges that accompany going out and setting off over the horizon, surrounding yourself completely by the ocean for days, months, at a time and uh, see see what we kind of come up with. So it is one of those programs where we're gonna we're gonna touch on some some kind of difficult subjects. We're gonna talk about a few of the people who have gone out to sea and have not come back. Uh, so some of the stories might be a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I guess I just want to say that, put that out there, that uh, some of the stories do involve people lost at sea. But we're also going to talk about some of the challenges that accompany going out to sea alone and in some respects with uh, other crew members and things like that. And then talk about some of the solutions as well and some of the things that have worked for me to help keep my head screwed on tight while I'm out uh, in this seemingly kind of uh, impossible situation where you're alone, you're thousands of miles from home, and uh, you're isolated and you can't stop because you are way out there and you just got to get back. So those are some of the subjects we're going to get into, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, they say that one in four people are dealing with issues and uh, mental health sort of, I don't want to say problems, but they're basically dealing with, with those sort of issues. One in four, that's, that's a pretty staggering number. Uh, you know, if you think about your circle of friends or your family and stuff like that, put that into context. And chances are you probably know somebody that uh, is sort of dealing with that stuff and as troubling as that sounds, uh, I think one of the biggest things is if if it's something that affects you, and I know in the past I've come back from, from the sea and uh, my head has not been really doing all that well, and I've always found that one of the best ways to sort of go about that is to talk to people about it, not try and hide it away, be pretty upfront and find the people that you trust, and you can talk to them about it because... That's kind of one of the, the best solutions I find. And, and obviously, it doesn't have to be friends or family. It can be a professional. But uh, seeking out sort of assistance is definitely the way to go. I'm no doctor or anything like that. But I've always found where any sort of issues, even physical ones, come, come into play. Uh, if you just try and hide it and you don't talk about it, seemingly only gets worse. So it's always good to... Uh, enlist the help of anybody that uh, might be able to help because you know it's always easier when you got a team of people rather than just you alone trying to deal with it. Uh, so that being said, 
We're going to talk about uh, the mind of a solo sailor and all that sort of stuff today. But before we start the show, like I always say, if you want to support the show and keep the podcast going, consider becoming one of the Patreon family. Uh, Our membership is a bunch of great, great people who have kept this show going and kept me in some good gear and helped me along the way. So link in the description for that. Obviously, we still have the merch out there available as always. And uh, if you want to reach out to the show, sailingintooblivion.com, you can click the podcast link and contact the show that goes directly to me. And obviously, we have Sailing Into Oblivion, the book, the audio book, all that sort of stuff. And coming, hopefully, by the end of the summer, we've actually got an illustrator working on the children's book series. It's a six-parter. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's not finished yet. Uh, at least the book is, but the illustrations aren't. you got to consider six six different books, a lot of illustrations. Hopefully it'll be a good one. It's all about the trip around the world, a little geography, a little adventure, a little uh, you know, can-do attitude, those sort of lessons and such. I'm really interested to see what we end up coming up with. So hopefully that'll be available by the end of the summer. I'll keep everybody in the loop. So without further ado, we're going to get into the mental aspects. And today I've actually got notes. I I wanted to make sure this was uh, a little more organized, I suppose, in in my thought process, a little less of going off into the weeds. But really, you know, I think it all sort of starts with that first trip around the world where people kept asking why. Why would I want to go? Why why would you do that? What's the desire there? And one aspect, and there were plenty, there were plenty of reasons why I wanted to go and do that. But one aspect was to see What happens mentally to me when I go out and isolate myself like that and, you know, basically go to the far reaches of the earth and try basically to hold it together while you're doing that and under a lot of pretty high pressure, high stress sort of situations, you know, not only dealing with storms and things like that and and worrying about things like sinking, but Also trying to deal with these calms and when you're sitting out there and you're not making any progress. And that really, for some reason, sparked my interest way back when in my mid-30s when I was plotting and planning, you know. It was a long time ago now. We're we're getting to be about, I think, I think this at the end of June this year, it will have been five years since I returned from that voyage. And though I've done quite a few other trips, none of them have equaled that one by any stretch of the imagination so far. So, uh, but yeah, I was very interested to see see what happens. And I, I don't know where that curiosity has come from in my life, but uh, I find that in a lot of ways I'm always sort of trying to experiment and see and figure out what where some of the lines are where some of the limits are I'm not I'm not really too sure uh, but the sea can be uh, really a make or break arena for a human being especially a solo sailor uh, when you get out there and the horizon changes from you know, houses and trees and land and all that sort of stuff and is 360 degrees of nothing but water 
and you get further and further and further away from that land, you are essentially isolating yourself and trapping yourself in a way. And when I think about that, it really is kind of an interesting almost experiment for anybody that does go out there. And whether you've done it once or you've done it a hundred times, it's always going to be a little bit of an experiment because each time you're going to be a little bit of a different person. Your headspace is going to be in a different sort of form. So you really never know exactly what you're going to get. But there are things that can help and seem to help, at least in my experience. Again, I'm no psychologist. Uh, I, I have no degrees in any of this sort of stuff. I just have quite a bit of experience with it. And so that's what we're going to sort of dive into. But first and foremost, I want to start with probably one of the scariest uh, examples of how bad things can actually happen and why I think these things happened as well. And we're going to talk about Donald Crowhurst. So a little bit of background, if you don't know who this is. Back in 1968 and 69, the first Golden Globe race. Now they've done two subsequent ones. Shout out to Kirsten once again. She won. Um, Essentially, back then, uh, there was one entrant, and his name was Donald Crowhurst, and he he was the last one to leave. He was under a severe amount of pressure before leaving. The boat wasn't ready. There were money issues. He's got a family. There's all this stuff, and... He's venturing off into the unknown in a way far beyond what I know, because obviously by the time I did this voyage, it had been done by 200 people or something. Um, Not so many in such a small boat, but you get the point. And so it's been proven. It can be done. People don't always lose it, that sort of thing. For Donald, it wasn't that way you know he was venturing off into uncharted waters no pun intended where essentially there was a pretty serious question of whether or not a human could actually sustain their mental capacity for that long being isolated out at sea so there was there were a lot of issues going out there and essentially long story short you know the boat's sort of falling apart he gets into the south atlantic decides that he's going to sort of cheat his way through it, not to win the race, but basically just to make it seem like he ran the course, came in last place, whatever, and was able to finish. And that would sort of uh, defer some of the financial issues and probably some embarrassment and things like that. It was essentially just a way out of, of the predicament that he found himself in. And uh, essentially, yeah, started sending these these false position reports. And, you know, he was smart enough. He had the mental aptitude to do this, basically have two different sets of logbooks and things like that. But essentially, as, as the other racers, Knox Johnson and Nigel Tetley and Mortissier started rounding Cape Horn and going north, he was going to sort of file in behind them. But as they started to drop off, then all of a sudden he found himself in a position where he was actually going to get found out. And he knew it because if he would have placed, if he would have even finished that race, I think they would have probably scoured over his logbooks. And essentially that came into play. So you got to picture yourself, the guy's out at sea for months and months and months. 
a lot of that time spent listlessly drifting around in the South Atlantic, which takes its toll as well. You know, if you're you're not making any progress, you know, sailing sailing typically has a start and a finish. You know, you've got this goal that you're trying to reach and you're doing everything in your power to reach that goal, to get back to that port. And if you're not doing that, that's where things can get pretty tricky. Um, couple that with financial issues, with a boat that's really not doing well. I've always been very lucky that Sparrow has has been as strong as Gibraltar. And I know that even when I lose some of the systems, like in the last big voyage, I'm still going to make it. The boat's still solid. Uh, I've never really had huge fears of this boat sinking or anything like that, even though the possibility is there. But put yourself in Donald's place, and there are a lot of external pressures. And I think when you're out there and you're alone and you have nothing else to think about, that's one of the biggest risks and one of the scariest aspects of putting yourself a thousand miles from shore, you know, weeks away from being able to get off of that boat, that that sort of stuff gets into your brain and it starts to just eat away at you. You you think about it when you're awake, you lie down in your bunk and your brain is just spinning, you get anxiety, you get all these thoughts, and you essentially can't shut your brain off for any, any amount of time so that you can just rest. And as that sort of wears at you, you, you can get into that zone of like, you're not really sleeping because you, your brain won't shut down. And now you're even getting more fatigued, which sort of spikes your anxiety and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know the internal workings of the brain enough to, to say exactly what's happening, if it's serotonin or, or, any of that sort of stuff. I, I don't even know exactly what serotonin is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, but essentially, you're, you're overwhelmed with all of this, this negative energy, these negative thoughts, and you know you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. You're cheating. Um, and you might get found out, and you're thinking about, you know, ahead of, of – what might happen, all this sort of stuff is really, really the pressures that, that Donald was under, uh, I think, were enough to essentially break him. And by that, I just mean that he, he basically lost control of his the choices that he was going to make and what he was doing out there. I mean, the proof is in the logbook that he had, which at the end, I think— they said it was like 25,000 words of just absolute gibberish um, to be able to sit down and write even a thousand words that don't make any sense at all uh, is one thing. But to do the amount that he did, obviously, he had pretty much lost it. And then no one knows exactly what happened, but they find the boat and they don't find Donald. And it's a tragic story. It's not something that you want uh, to think about when you're out at sea. I don't think about Donald Crowhurst when I'm out there. Uh, I try to, I think there was one time that I was reading a voyage for mad men and typically I would skip over any of the Donald Crowhurst stuff, excuse me, and just, just look at some of the other guys. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, 
it's just one of those cautionary tales. And I think as we get into the section on sort of some of the solutions and everything, I think that's one of the big keys. And we'll get into that in a bit, but it's it's knowing that you've got sort of a clear conscience when you're heading out there. That's that's definitely one of the big things. You don't want to have a huge amount of stuff that's on your mind. You know, the the ocean for a solo sailor is not a place to heal and escape any of your issues. It's a place where I think you venture out to to experience uh, the ocean experience, mother nature experience, you know, solo sailing. It's not a place to go and run and try and hide for a little bit because you can't hide from your brain. You can't hide from your thoughts. And eventually, uh, it can really, really do a number on you. <clears throat> so that, that was sort of the tragic story of, of Donald Crowhurst. And again, I, I think one of the big props and what makes, Sir Robin Knox Johnson, such a, uh, I don't know, heroic sort of figure in the sailing world. Not only has he done, you know, his exploits are just absolutely amazing. But when when he won that race, because he was the only one who finished uh, the prize money, he ended up giving to the Crowhurst family because essentially they had lost just about everything, including, you know, the father figure. So touching story for sure that's it's the only way i could put any sort of uh good happy spin on the end of that one not that there really should be but uh it is it says a lot about the character of a guy like sir robin knox johnson the other story that really hit me and sort of freaked me out and i've got it loaded up it was one of it was on the outside podcast and i think it's an excerpt from either a book or just an article, something like that, but it's about a guy by the name of Richard Carr. And the actual podcast was from November 12, 2022. It's on the outside podcast. Definitely uh, check it out, but ye be warned because it got into my head for sure. But it's called An SOS from the Middle of the Ocean. And essentially, uh, this guy, he was, he's an, he was a retired psychologist, which you know, it's interesting. Um, but he sets off, he's on a 36 foot boat and he sets off from, uh, Mexico and he was headed towards the Marquesas. Essentially he was, he was doing that whole sort of cliche thing of, you know, older guy. He's, he's never sailed around the world. He's looking for one last big adventure, you know, getting older, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I'm sure I'll get there at one point, but he he sets off and after just a week or two out at sea starts sending these very odd messages back to his family i really think it you know listening to this podcast would be uh interesting for a lot of the listeners but it is like i said it's it's kind of disturbing but essentially throughout these messages things get weirder and weirder and they don't make much sense and um you can sense that there's a lot of paranoia and probably some hallucinations going on. And I think in this respect, because they don't, I don't know a whole lot of background on this person. I think one of the things that I've experienced is when you get into a extremely sleep deprived state, that's when Things really stop making sense. And if you're out there, and I, be, I don't know if this was this 
the first experience that this gentleman had had uh, solo sailing. It sounds like it probably was kind of his uh, his first little stint in a big ocean crossing alone. Which I mean, from Mexico to the Marquesas, that's a few thousand miles. That's that's a that's a big crossing of just nothing but empty ocean water out there. Well, you know, he's he's out there. He's he's probably a little worried about like shipping or whatever, and so the sleep deprivation starts. And then if you add in some anxiety, some question, kind of like Donald Crowe is like, "What am I doing out here? Is this the right choice?" Um, I can definitely see a situation where the idea of solo sailing around the world, even via the trade winds where you're stopping a bunch of places, it has this romanticism. It has this allure. It's this idea of the ultimate adventure, really. And that idea is one thing, but to actually carry it out is a whole nother thing. And one of the issues that I think people sometimes can run into is that the preparation and buying a boat and every single time you you know pull out that credit card and you end up spending some more money you're digging yourself deeper in to this adventure and you get to a point where you have spent so much time so much money so much energy into this goal that it can sometimes blind you to the fact of what you're actually getting yourself into, which is, you know, a commitment of possibly years to get around the planet and do this. And it may almost fall into that Crowhurst realm of, you know, if I if I say I don't want to go because I'm sort of freaking out and this is really kind of scary and I don't didn't realize what I'm getting into you know, people are going to laugh at me and they're going to think I'm an idiot and all this sort of stuff. And I think in this situation that may have played into it. And again, I don't know. I'm just sort of uh, taking a shot in the dark here. But in any event, I think it's I think these these examples are probably pretty valid. Um, I know in my own experience, there's been times where, you know, I I get the idea in my head to do some adventure like trying to double you know, Cape Horn, go off into the Pacific, find that island and come back, uh, go around the Americas, go around the entire world. And when I was in Gloucester, after spending basically all my money and spending a year of time getting ready and the subsequent three years before that, basically saving everything so that I could do all this trip, there is a bit of uh, an overwhelming feeling of what have I just gotten myself into? Because when it's all just the prep, it's one thing. Uh, you can focus on that, little tasks at hand, things like that, and you kind of distract your brain a little bit and you distract it away from the overall picture of what you're actually trying to accomplish. And as that happens, you start to... Uh, essentially, um, essentially, when you make that transition from we're preparing this boat and we're doing these things to, all right, let's untie these lines and get after it, that can be uh, a major sort of slap in the face. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in an overwhelmingly anxious state because you're now, you know, 
the horizon has changed just to water, land is behind you, and now you're in it and you're stuck out there. And so essentially this gentleman was out there and like I said, after a few weeks, his, his uh, communications to his family got a little bit strange. They started getting pretty scary. They was talking about like pirates and um, all these things. I'll let you listen to the podcast if you want the full full story from it. But eventually, they stop hearing from him, and they can't find the boat, and they can't find him, and they don't know what happened. So it's another story of someone who essentially, more than likely, um, sort of lost it and either scuttled his boat or jumped off the boat and uh, was never never seen again. And as far as I know, they, they never found the boat. So chances are uh, he either scuttled it or, you know, left the boat wide open and the first first little bit of bad weather came and and it was able to take it take it down so kind of a scary incident you know this i hate hearing stories like that and this one affected me really uh sharply i guess you could say because it's something that i think was probably exacerbated you know regardless of his mental state as he went out there I think probably one of the things that did happen was a major dose of sleep deprivation. And that's something that I had more experience with on my last voyage than I ever had before. And it's pretty scary because you ultimately feel like you almost have no control over what the heck is going on in your head. Um, You know, from my experience, essentially, I went from you know, being in a storm, all that sort of stuff and getting knocked down the real sort of, uh, what's the best way to put it? The real situation that I found myself in was I no longer had the capability to see if ships were going to come over that horizon and where they were and all that sort of stuff. And that, that really hit me hard because I'd never had to deal with that situation before, at least unbeknownst to me. Um, I, I did find out that the vast majority of the Southern Ocean, I did not have a working AIS unit. I didn't find that out until I rounded Cape Horn <laughs> and saw the first ship, but I couldn't see it on the AIS. Then I switched out the, the aerial with the spare and then it worked again. But it's one of those things where just the thought of, oh my gosh, dude, I get run over out here. These ships probably don't see me. Um, that got into my head quite a bit. And then to add on to that, also, you know, at the time, it was pretty scary seeing these huge, giant breaking waves and knowing that if I were to be hit by one of these, these, uh, these walls of white water, we were probably going to get knocked down again or we were going to get rolled or we were going to lose the mast. And so there was a fear from that and just the noise and just that that memory of being down below and having your whole world turn upside down. So these these things were creeping into my head and it was um, it became harder and harder to actually fall asleep. I know I was able to get some sleep the day after that first, uh, or when that knockdown happened, I was just so exhausted. I had been awake for over 24 hours and my body essentially just shut down, but it was in the subsequent 
two weeks where I was trying to get back to land that really, um, there were a few nights in, there were two more weather systems that I had to make my way through. And it was the second weather system, the last one, it was a, a front that came down from the North and it, it produced some breaking waves for sure. Nothing like that first night, but it, it was one of those things where the sound of them off in the distance, you know, especially at night, just made it so hard for me to sleep. And then add on the fact that I might get run over because I was heading into a more and more uh, packed shipping and traffic area. It, it, it was all sort of coming into play. And, you know, I'd, I'd be awake for essentially 24 hours at a time and, and maybe exhaustion would be able to allow me to sleep for 30 minutes or an hour, possibly. But for the most part, I just lay in that bunk and I'm like, oh gosh, I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. But my brain wouldn't shut off and I would it would start playing tricks on me. It, it's essentially, you know, I, I'd hear the rumble of a far off engine or think I did and then go back up and take a look around and then you know, there'd be a breaking wave or something. And then I'd, you know, sort of freak out a little bit about that. And I was lucky because I wasn't 2000 miles away from land. I was only maybe a thousand miles or a little less. No, I think I was probably about 800 miles away. Well, I'm looking at the chart right now. I was pretty far away. <laughs> I was basically due South of Bermuda yeah, about halfway in between Bermuda and the Caribbean. And I wanted to get back to the States and yeah, it was a, it was definitely a scary, scary time. And there, there was the slightest bit of hallucination that was going on where I was sort of seeing things. Um, and I couldn't sort of trust my eyes at that point. And that's where things for me took a little bit of uh, a darker turn, I guess you could say, where, you know, the second you start seeing something, and you're rubbing your eyes and you still see it and it's there, but you know it's not there. That's when you start to question your own mental faculties a little bit. And the whole idea of, oh, I might be kind of losing control a little bit here creeps in. And as soon as you get that thought, then all of a sudden you get this sort of paranoia, a little bit of anxiety to add on, add into the mix, so to speak. And that's where... It gets, yeah, it definitely gets scary. You start, things, you get that whole snowball effect, the avalanche of, you know, oh, okay, well, we start with this. We're just a little sleep deprived, no big deal. Uh, but then you start to get a little bit of the exhaustion on top of that. And then that leads into a little bit of anxiety. And then all of a sudden now you're dealing with, uh, you haven't slept in a really long time and you start to get, you know, a few of these hallucinations and suddenly now instead of just dealing with uh, a little bit of sleep um, deprivation, now you're dealing with like four or five different things and they, they pile on top of each other. And, you know, my buddy Matt Rutherford, uh, shout out to the Single-Handed Sailing Podcast, uh, he, he definitely, when he and I talked after this last trip, you know, he he had mentioned one one thing to me that I think was was pretty pertinent. And he he had said, you know, there's just a point that he gets to out at sea where he's like, you know what, what will be will be. And I'm just going to 
take my sails down. I'm going down into my bunk, and I'm just going to sleep. And I'm not setting an alarm. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just going to sleep because my body needs it, and I do not care. He said it in a, a little bit more colorful language if you've listened to his podcast. Uh, but it's, yeah, essentially, I'm not saying that that's like a, hmm, it's not, it's not just a thing that you can do, but if you're in that, if you have that sort of mental ability where you're like, you know, mm, I know I need to get some sleep. I'm just going to shut everything down. Whatever happens, happens, but I'm definitely, I've got to get some sleep and recharge the batteries. That right there was, uh, I don't know, it made me think quite a bit because there's a lot of times where I'm like, no, nah, you know, I got to keep sailing the boat. I got to keep a good lookout. Well, there are times where you're so tired that you do need to, you need to just stop. You need, you know, turn the lights on, put the radar reflector up there, hove to, do whatever you got to do, get the boat comfortable, quiet, and just go down below and sleep and sleep for a couple hours. And, you know, I'm not recommending you do this in a shipping lane. I'm not recommending you do this, you know, 10 miles outside of Charleston Harbor where you got ships everywhere and all that sort of stuff. But if you're in a situation where you're well offshore and all that, then, then, you know, Hey, Go for it because you don't want to be so tired and so sleep deprived that you're going to make a mistake. You're going to be like, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll just try and go faster. So I'll put the big drifter up. I know it's blown really hard. And you go up there and, you know, <laughs> end up slipping or something like that. You don't clip in. Who knows? And and then then you become sort of a cautionary tale. Um, so I don't know. It, it's It's one of those things where the whole grappling with your mind can be a pretty frightening part of the whole solo sailing thing because like i said one thing leads to another and then all of a sudden you can get to a point where you start to almost lose control now the last one the last sort of story before we start stripping down and getting into sort of the aspects of of all this sort of sort of this subject is Bernard Mortissier, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, a lot of people, I've, I've read a lot about him, and I know there were a lot of people that sort of felt that he kind of lost the plot when he was out in the Golden Globe race and decided in the South Atlantic Ocean, instead of going north and winning the race, he ended up heading back down around the Cape of Good Hope, into the Indian Ocean, and then off into the Pacific uh, for essentially a second go-round with the coming winter uh, in the Southern Ocean and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I don't think it was one of those things where he kind of went crazy or anything like that from being out on the ocean because obviously he's, he was well-proven that he could handle being out there and, and being alone. I mean, his his exploits in the very beginning of his career, going from Southeast Asia across the Indian Ocean, wrecking the boat, and then going into the South Atlantic on the new boat and going all the way up to the Caribbean and stuff. He, he'd spent quite a bit of time alone at sea. So he definitely, he seemed to enjoy it. Um, from his reading, from his books, 
you could definitely see that he found a almost mythical side of of being out there on the ocean and there there have been some people that that think that you know he may have had some bipolar sort of tendencies um you know with the huge mood swings and things like that but i think in this case um i think he was completely uh i think he was completely just looking at his life and his experience and who he wanted to be not only for himself but i think for the world around him because he was already a very very famous person when it came to sailing and it came to mostly in his own country of france and then all these you know the the sailing ports of the world that he would venture off to but essentially i i think in his in that situation I think he knew that if he went back there and he won that race, uh, which most assuredly he would have caught Knox Johnson without much issue, uh, I think it would have he would have felt the as though he had betrayed the ocean which he loved. And I know this, this might sound, you know, hoity-toity or whatever. I don't know, uh, but these thoughts are are thoughts that that cross my mind when I'm out there on the ocean and why I'm doing it and what the experience is for me. And I think in a lot of ways for him, he just realized that if he went and did that and won the race, then that whole experience of sailing around the entire planet for him uh, from everybody else's angle would have been, oh, well, you know, he was racing. He was in this race. And for him, and myself as well. The idea of racing is not something, you know, either of us, I think, we're very interested in. It's more about the experience and and being out there and sort of the communion that man and boat and ocean and planet all sort of come together in this really, really vivid experience when you're out there. And I think he just didn't want to betray that in any way. I mean, he talked about when when he wrote The Logical Route, I think he had talked about how he sort of wrote that book and he felt like he b- betrayed that entire voyage because, you know, he wrote the book he he wrote the book fast and, you know, it's almost like he felt like he was selling out. So I I think from from my own perspective, I I think that he really had a bit of um, a tug of war, so to speak, going on with, you know, not not so much like his legacy or anything like that. I think it was more his reality. In his reality, he wanted to make sure that his communion with the ocean and with sailing and everything was pure, and it was for the experience. It wasn't for anything else. And he knew, I think he knew that if he were to go back and win that race, then it would take away from the purity of that experience. And so he decided he wanted to go to his happy place um, because I'm sure he knew there was going to be quite a bit of fallout from this. I mean, his his family and stuff were up there in France. They wanted him to come home. Um, A lot of people probably wanted him to win that race. And he he probably felt as though, you know, oh, geez, my my the French people are going to kill me. <laughs> I should say they're going to want me to win all this sort of stuff. And so he ends up 
sailing through another two oceans to get, uh, uh, I think, eventually to the Tuamotos where he anchored up. And, you know, you read his book, and I think I think that comes, it rings true in, in the reading of The Long Way. Um, but I don't think that he went crazy. I, I think, really, uh, he just saw something. He saw a chance to to have the experience stay pure and stay true to his own little guidelines and his own experience and what he wanted out of it. And uh, I got to actually give him credit because I think that uh, trying to do things to impress other people or feed the ego and all that sort of stuff uh, are sometimes almost insurmountable when everybody's rooting for you to do something and you don't feel like it's really what you want to do. It's hard to have that outweigh, you know, a chanting public that, that, you know, want to congratulate you, want, want you to be this hero. Uh, But I think, you know, we've all got our own little lives to live. And if you're not being true to yourself, then, uh, well, what's the point, right? Why you might be the most popular, most famous person in the world, but if you're not really doing it all for you, if it's if it's not making you happy and you're just doing it because it's making other people happy who then feed you this great feeling of like, wow, oh, I must be really good. I must be doing something right. But deep down inside, you know that you've just sullied or sullied. I don't know what the word is. Um the experience that you just had. And I think that was what was going on in Bernard's head. I I think he was probably just like, no way. If I go back there, I will have tainted this experience. And, and my, you know, that was his biggest trip ever going around the world. I think it was like 45,000 miles or something like that. Not too sure. Uh, but epic, absolutely epic. So there we go. Those are the three sort of examples. I know, boy, this this podcast might get pretty long. I don't know. We'll we'll have to sort of see. But uh, one of the big examples from my own experiences would be the 2020 trip where I had intended to go around the Americas and possibly try and do the actual figure eight nonstop that Randall Reeves pioneered. Shout out to Randall. so on this trip, essentially, I get up there, I take off in, I think I took off in July, I make my way up there, I'm in the Labrador Sea, and then they close off the Northwest Passage for good for everybody, and I end up not being able to just head back to Maine, I end up going across the Atlantic because the hurricane season had well and truly started, and the winds and everything were going to be pretty bad, and I figured, you know, I'm going to go and go across the Atlantic, get out of the hurricane belt, come up with a new game plan while I'm out here because I was in this fully provisioned boat. You know, everything was looking good, working well. And uh, I, I, I had like a year's worth of food. Again, I'd spent pretty much everything I had. I had been preparing all this sort of stuff. Um, that was a tricky trip to prepare for because Sparrow is a fiberglass boat. You're going up into the ice. Um, so there were a lot of... A lot of questionable things about whether or not that trip was going to work. 
but I wanted to give it a shot. And, uh, and so I did. And, you know, for, for two weeks of my life, I was headed up into the Arctic for this grand adventure, but then, you know, eventually got sort of stopped. Now cut to passing the Azores and making my way South. Cause I thought about going around the world, um, from east to west or possibly just going around again there were a lot of questions one of the things that i didn't have set for the first time in my life out at sea was a goal and i did not i was trying to figure it out while i was out there and add on to that question or lack thereof a goal there's also all these hurricanes brewing the 2020 season was really busy really busy hurricane season. Uh, I don't know if it was a record breaker, but it was darn close. And so I'm out in the Atlantic, place you don't want to be during the hurricane season. I'm headed down towards the Cape Verde Islands. This is also, you know, during the uh, beginning and height of the pandemic. So places were not uh, open. You know, the Azores were not open. I couldn't go and stop there. Um, I couldn't, it, it, it did not seem like it was a wise decision to go and pull in somewhere, even if I was just going to go anchor, because I really didn't want to cause any sort of international incident. You know, the idiot American, Jerome Rand, is out there, and he's just broken the quarantine of this country or blah, blah, blah. So there was a little bit of anxiety or paranoia with that uh, added to, again, the fact that the feeling of being stuck at sea was very much amplified in this situation. So essentially <laughs> I'm, I'm out at sea. I'm fully provisioned, which was great, but I don't have a real goal set. I don't know exactly where I'm going, what the rest of the trip is going to be. The hurricane season is there. It's, it's a little dicey because there's, I think at one point there were like five named storms out there and uh, there really aren't, any places where I, I can very easily normally just pull off and, you know, duck and hide, you know, the Azores would have been a great place to just stop and wait a couple of months, see what happens, collect my thoughts, all that sort of stuff. But that possibility really wasn't there because of the world situation at that point. So now I've got this sort of feeling like, holy cow, I'm like really stuck out here at sea and I can't or it is very risky. There were a lot of times where all of a sudden the easterly winds were kicking in and it looked like I had a clear shot to just zoom back towards the East Coast. But lo and behold, more hurricanes, all that sort of stuff. It would have been very, very risky. And the thought of you know, getting stuck in a hurricane uh, off the coast of the U.S. was definitely not, not cool at all. Now, there's one other aspect of this whole thing, which may seem small, but for me, it was very, very large. And that was the amount of fuel that I had aboard Sparrow. On that trip, because I was going through the Northwest Passage, I had a ton of diesel fuel. And essentially, uh, when I say ton, I almost did have a ton. I had 250 gallons of diesel in a bladder down below underneath my bunk. And... It, I don't think, to this day, I still don't think that that bladder was actually leaking. I think when I filled it up 
And when things got rough, there was just a little bit that was coming out of the top valve. But diesel's kind of weird. It's real oily. So you think you mopped it all up, but underneath there might be some more. And then it sort of, so long story short, there were always times where, you know, you could smell the diesel and you could see it coming, you know, a little tiny bit here, a little tiny bit there. And the worry was that this thing was going to open up fill my bilge with diesel, uh, probably well above the floorboards, and I was going to have to ditch it over the side. Again, international incident, you know. Uh, small American sailboat dumps 250 gallons of diesel into the ocean, huge oil slick, you know, satellite shots. All these things are going through my head. As realistic or as unrealistic as that might have been, it, it was... Uh, this, these thoughts that were plaguing me that I couldn't get away from because there was I couldn't burn that fuel. It would take me like a month to burn it. And the, the idea was that I was going to burn it all, you know, motoring through the Northwest Passage because there really isn't a huge amount of wind up there. Well, so now I'm stuck with that. I don't think I can stop. I don't have any goals. All these things are playing off each other. And I can remember one day in particular where... I definitely almost lost it, and it was raining. I was motoring. There was no wind at all. It was off the coast of Africa. Um, I think I was past the Cape Verdes at this point, and it was loud. It was hot. I was kind of down below because I was sick of being wet, and I just might... I almost just lost it. Like I just could not keep my head from spinning with all these thoughts, all these images of things going wrong and this happening and this happening, and I'm up on deck just to get away from the noise, and I'm up on the foredeck, and all I can think is, like, holy cow, that water would just be sweet salvation. It would just be so easy to just just stop. And the only way to do that would be if I just jump right in right now. And I was able to sort of calm those thoughts for sure, uh, obviously, because I'm still here, <laughs> but it was uh, a time where that thought, much like all these other thoughts, were sort of inundating my head, and I couldn't get, I could not shut them off. I just couldn't shut them up. And when that thought came in, you know, obviously it's not something you want to think about as a solo sailor, but I was just in this this realm. So I, I ended up going down below. I shut the engine down. We just drifted, and at least that cut that part out of it. And I sat and basically came up with a game plan. And I was like, okay, I need to have a goal. I can't be out here without any sort of pl- uh, plan uh, or any destination in mind. And that's when I came up with the idea, okay, let's get back to the States. Let's forego the whole trying to you know do some other grand adventure. Let's just get back to the States. We'll, we'll reset at that point because I knew I could just – go back to my home country without any problem. Didn't have to clear customs because I didn't stop anywhere. And um, that was going to be my safe zone. Now, to get there, obviously, it was not going to be quick by any means. I'm basically over next to Africa, and we're still in the hurricane season. I think it was the beginning or middle of September at this point, probably the beginning. And so height of the hurricane season, not a place you want to be, dealing with these tropical waves coming off Africa that are turning into hurricanes. 
And so essentially I figured, okay, well, I'll go down to the equator. Then I'll start making my way to the west uh, underneath the hurricane path. And hopefully by the time I get to a point where I'm turning up, I will uh, will be deep uh, or towards the tail end of the hurricane season. And as it went, you know, uh, long story short, I got a little bit um, impatient, I guess you could say, with the whole venture and everything and the idea that I was going to go back to the States completely broke. But just having that goal did help a huge amount for my mental quiet, to be able to just quiet my brain down start to try and enjoy a little bit of the experience around me and the world around me and not be just completely, you know, spinning my wheels trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. But yeah, eventually I I was very lucky that when I did make my turn to the north, cutting right across the hurricane path for whatever reason, during this very busy hurricane season, we ended up with uh, about a two-week break in all the storms, which was exactly the time I was going from essentially the Caribbean proper, like um, Dominica and that area or that latitude, all the way back up to Beaufort, South Carolina. So lucky me and uh, lessons learned and things like that. And, you know, that was one of my experiences where I definitely felt like I was losing the grip on the reality of my situation. And I I do truly think that one of the things that pulled me out of that was setting up and actually having a set goal of what I was trying to do, something I could work towards, something that gave me essentially some sort of purpose. Uh, Because up until that point, I was trying and searching for that. And the open ocean's not really a great place to be questioning what your purpose is and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously those thoughts come into your mind when you're out there and all that sort of stuff, but uh, more in a abstract way rather than a poignant, like, where am I actually physically going with this boat? Um, you know, I'm not just out here to just sail. Uh, although I have done that and that, that, that is kind of fun. I do enjoy that every once in a while. Um, but to be sort of in that situation, it, it was not working and it was driving me crazy. So <clears throat> that was one of those, uh, uh, that was probably the closest I ever came to losing it completely out at sea. All right, I'm going to take just a quick little break, give my voice a bit of a rest, and then we're going to get into the some of the challenges that I think solo sailors will face, and then also some of the solutions that I uh, have found help in those sort of situations. We'll be right back. And we are back. Okay, so let's get into some of the challenges that one solo sailor would face when you head out there, and what are some of the things that you have to keep in mind uh, before you set off to go on a solo trip, or even, I guess a lot of these would pertain pretty well towards any sort of sailing offshore trip, say, East Coast to Caribbean, out to Bermuda, across the Atlantic, or, hey, around the world. Why not? The first and foremost, I think, especially for a solo sailor, is going to be the isolation. You're alone. You are with your brain and on your little boat for a long time by yourself. And there isn't really an escape from that. 
that's the pertinent sort of uh, aspect of this whole thing that I think until you've actually done it, you don't really know what it's going to be like to put yourself in that sort of situation. And it's it can be tricky. I used to tell people if they wanted to experience it without actually having to go out to see, the closest that I've ever found towards uh, any sort of real training of like what it's like to just be alone is to go camping and do a solo trip somewhere where, you know, you're not going to see other people. You're going to be able to set up a little campsite or whatever and spend a couple of days doing that. Just being alone, just being by yourself. You have your little things that you have to do for the day and all that sort of stuff, cooking, cleaning, sleeping, setting up camp, all that sort of stuff. And that gives kind of the same feel when you are soul sailing. Now, obviously, there you can obviously walk out of the woods, go to your car, and go back to your house. So there is that bit of an escape plan that's a lot easier and a lot faster than if you were to set sail for a place like Bermuda. But at the same time, it will give you a glimpse into what it's like to isolate yourself. And if you know, if you find that, oh man, uh, I was absolutely going bananas after the first day. I didn't know what to do with myself. All I did was, you know, pace around the campfire and, you know, couldn't wait to get out of there. Well, hey, then, you know, maybe it's not uh, exactly the best or healthiest thing for, for said person to do. Now, I had a lot of experience with that on the Appalachian Trail. You know, the first half you see a lot of people, but by about the second half of that trail, uh, the amount of AT through hikers sort of thins out. And even though you still see people most days, there were probably the last like 70 days, except for the very end. Uh, I was camping by myself pretty much every single night. And so I got very used to that situation and I found that I could handle it and I actually enjoyed it quite often. Um, you know, just sort of being out there alone. And I didn't have much trouble when it came to calming my brain or the thoughts that were coming into it. I really, really was trying desperately to live in the present and enjoy the surroundings that were around me. And I think that was one of the big sort of solutions, I guess, to to that isolation issue is that you don't want to try and fight it and keep your brain all busy and all that, you actually really wanted to immerse yourself in it and listen to the quiet, if that makes any sense at all. Um, The fact that you don't have people sort of distracting you and and things like that, yeah, I mean, it it can be a challenge in the beginning, but like I said in the past, uh, that that low-level input of just the world around you without all the noise and chaos of, of normal society and, and normal life these days is a little unnerving at first, but it can become very, very enjoyable once you get used to it. But the isolation of, of solo sailing and of sailing offshore in general is is probably one of the Hmm. Uh, it's probably just the most in your face of all the challenges that you will encounter when you go out there is that, yeah, it's just you and you are out there and it's, um, you're, you're 
every day you're getting further away or every day you're getting a little closer back to land. Either way, you're still out there and you've isolated yourself. And so fighting it is not really a great way to go about it. I find that immersing yourself in it definitely is is the better of the two choices because then it's not a problem. It's actually an experience, if that makes sense. Sleep definitely comes into play. And I, you know, I think for, for the vast majority of my solo sailing career, I have never had any real issue with it. Um, you know, obviously you're going to go through weather conditions that don't allow you to sleep when it gets real squally and really changeable, real variable, then obviously, yeah, you're, you're going to have 24 hour periods where you just can't sleep. You, you have to constantly be on your guard too much is going on and you just you just deal with it. That's that's definitely one of the challenges. And and that's why, you know, not everybody goes solo sailing because it's not the easiest thing. But then there are other times where it's beautiful out and the boat is in this beautiful, wonderful rhythm. The winds are steady. Um, the noise and everything almost can lull you to sleep. And it's it's I, I'll, I'll never forget turning the corner around Brazil and heading towards the Caribbean on the first trip and having 12 days where I only did two sail changes that whole time. And I didn't even do sail change. All I did was douse the drifter for about 15 minutes and then put it right back up. And I can remember like lounging around down below. There was no traffic. There was nothing. And I could just read and fall asleep reading wake up and watching the stars. And then, Oh man, it was phenomenal. I don't think I slept that much, uh, even on land, probably not even when I was a teenager (laughs) and used to sleep in all the time. Um, but sleep can definitely become sort of an issue. And when you're out there and, and you start to get a little bit sleep deprived, I think, I think this is one of those things where you do have to sort of, you have to have a bit of an arsenal, um, or you, you have to have some tools that will help you to get to sleep. And I'm not talking about like sleeping pills or anything like that. Cause that would, I would think be a pretty big no, no. Um, you know, I, I think the closest thing to that would be a sundowner. Um, and obviously those you got to watch out for, uh, make sure you're not, you're not getting too crazy with that sort of stuff. But I do find that having good systems like AIS, having a radar reflector, having really nice lights. Um, I also keep my little secret weapon is a laser pointer, a pretty powerful one at that. And I used to use it for doing stargazing lectures and things like that. And it, you know, on a dark night, it looks like a lightsaber going up into the sky so you can point out each individual star. But my thinking, and I've never had to actually do this because I've never had a close call quite like this, but I would think that if you were in a situation where, you know, there was a ship coming and it was getting really close and you couldn't get them on the VHF, you couldn't get them with your normal systems, um, you know, if you start beaming a laser pointer right at the bridge they're gonna notice that uh there's no escaping that one you know laser pointers you you can't even point them at airplanes and uh because they detect them up there and stuff so that definitely you know having having a few different systems to be able to really uh defend yourself 
out there from getting run over or, um, you know, basically knowing that, yeah, if I go to sleep for an hour or two, I'm going to uh, I'm going to get a wake up call if there is some sort of danger. Now, obviously, you know, you can't really have a wake up call for some of the other scary things that might keep you awake at night. And that would be like whales or for me, um, whales are kind of a big one for me. (laughs) I don't know why I've always had sort of a bit of a fear of them, but the other would be like a half submerged container or something in the water that you might hit. And, you know, it's one of those things where in the past, all I've ever really been able to do is just put that thought out of my head. If I lay down and I start thinking about it, and I used to do this with the Appalachian Trail as well. When you're hiking, if you start thinking about bears jumping out of the woods and, and you know, gnawing your leg off, well, honestly, all you have to do is you have to start thinking of something else. Find your happy place, so to speak. And that's what I would do. If, I, if I'm laying in my bunk and I start thinking about submerged object or something like that, one of the things that I would always think of is, okay, well, it's nighttime. I wouldn't be able to see the thing anyway, uh, even if I was up on deck and I had a flashlight and I was, you know, on the bowsprit trying to spot these things, which is ludicrous to even think about doing anyway. You know, you sort of rationalize it like, well, I might as well just go to sleep because I'm not I'm not up there looking with a flashlight. And even if I did, I wouldn't be able to see it in time before I hit it anyway. So you almost have to just sort of uh, make sense of the situation and be like, all right, there's no point in sitting here thinking about it. So I'm going to distract my brain a little bit and we're going to think about, you know, being on that beach with that person and how wonderful that moon looked or what it was like doing. So it's the only time I'll ever sort of transpose myself, if that's the right word, to another place. You know, I like to be in the present, what's going on right then and there. But if you're if you're trying to battle with your brain a little bit and get some of those fears out of the way, then, yeah, if you, you got to do what you got to do. So having to be able to get that sleep, which is so, so, so important, I think really it's it's having all the systems in place to be able to make sure that uh, you will be woken up if needed to be. And then, um, you know, know that you know, sleeping typically is done in like little one hour increments. That doesn't mean you're only going to get one hour, but typically my routine when I'm out there is, you know, I head down below, I sleep. And if for whatever reason I wake up, be it an hour or two hours later, I'll pop my head up on deck, look around. Mostly I'm just looking at the sky, trying to see if there's any squalls around. If there's nothing, boom, right back down in that bunk and I sleep some more. And I'll do that throughout the night where, you know, I might get five one-hour chunks of sleep and that's pretty darn good. And knowing that, okay, well, tomorrow midday after I do my position report, yeah, I'm probably going to go lay down, see if I can catch a couple hours sleep. Middle of the day, it's a little bit easier. Um, Typically when you are out there solo sailing long distance for a long time, you get into an almost perpetual tired state where you almost could kick off for an hour or so anytime you want because you're always a little bit tired, which is kind of where I find I want to be. 
Um, because if the weather's good and there aren't any squalls around, you want to be able to take advantage of that, get some sleep, so that if you do wander into uh, a tropical wave or something like that, then, hey, you're refreshed, you're ready, and you can stay up for 24 hours if need be. Uh, and that kind of leads us into the fear. Because, yeah, all these little fears kind of easily can can pop up. And if you let them sort of get in your head, i.e., the submerged container, the pirate ship, the uh, oil tanker that's, you know, nobody's watching what they're doing, the rogue wave that's going to come out of nowhere. These sort of fears are always going to creep into your head if you let them. But I do find that through a little bit of practice, it is something that you can displace them. You can rationalize them out of your head and then that doesn't really work. You just fill your head with a different sort of thought and that that typically will help. Um, one of the things about the fears, I always, always am a little bit anxious the first day or so that I set sail. It's nothing like I, I'm sure I know people have told me they're like, oh, you're just sailing up to Maine. Like, that's no big deal for you, blah, blah, blah. Well, it is. Um, anytime that you set sail for an offshore passage, especially alone, it's it's a big deal. You um you have a lot on your plate. It's a pretty hefty challenge. You don't know what the weather's going to do for, you know, the next two weeks. And so you are sort of entering into a dangerous arena that you need to really take seriously. And when, when the fears sort of come in, I know I expect them. I expect to be nervous uh, and probably not get a good amount of sleep the first day or two. I know that it's going to take a little time, but knowing that, I also know that as you get more comfortable being out there, and it usually does just take a day or two, then all of a sudden a lot of those fears are going to subside, and knowing that really can help. It helps to deal with the initial fear, being like, all right, yeah, I know, kind of freaking out a little bit, but... I know it's going to fade because it always does, and so I'm going to be good. So let's not panic. Let's not freak out. We'll just sort of deal with it now. Let's turn on some music. Let's have a good dinner. Distracting yourself from other things with other tasks, that definitely helps to sort of calm those fears. And, you know, obviously the fear of bad weather coming in, the approaching gale and all that sort of stuff, that... Um, you know, I, I don't think that of that in the same light as sort of the initial sort of fear of, of setting sail and, and the anxiety that comes along with, with setting sail and, and heading out for the first few days. But I think that it's definitely relevant. Um, a long time ago, deep in the Southern Ocean, I can remember one of the first huge gales that came in was down, um, just south of Africa, and it was a hefty one. Um, as it developed and the forecast went, I mean, it was it was going to be seventy knots or something like that around the center of the 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 low pressure system, and that's sustained. Who knows what the gale or the uh, the gusts would have been? But in any event, I can remember sort of freaking out <laughs> uh, as this thing was approaching because it was a couple of days out, and I just thought to myself. All right, well, if I just sit here and worry the whole time, I'm not really doing any uh, 
any good. All I'm doing is, is, you know, amping myself up, amping up my own anxiety. Instead of doing that, let's put our energy towards something a bit positive. And that was coming up with plan A, B, C, and D. And these were all different ideas, untested pretty much at that point, of what I would do if and when these winds hit us and things start to escalate. I was very lucky in this situation that the the low, I was actually becalmed the very next day, which slowed me down, which made it so that um, by the time this system got to almost hurricane force, uh, it was well past me to the east. So I didn't see the brunt of it, but it did get pretty hairy. Um, but I had all these different game plans. I came up with, okay, well, first, this is what I'll do. I'm going to go down to like a triple reef. And then I'm going to use just a staysail, and I'm going to actually run sheets from the regular tracks, but I'm going to have a secondary one in case that breaks, and da-da-da. I had all these different plans, a storm jib. I don't want to go into all the full details of it, but essentially I had all these different plans, and it took me a long time to sort of sort them out and figure out what was going to work and what was going to go first and second and third. And before I knew it, all of a sudden I felt far more prepared, far more ready for the coming gale. And I, you know, at that point, then all of a sudden the fear, it didn't subside completely, but it was, it was definitely dampened down quite a bit because I felt like I was ready for it. I wasn't just sitting there like worrying, twiddling my thumbs, like how bad's it going to be? How bad's it going to be? No, it was more of a, here we go. We've got our systems in place. We're going to have to just see what happens, but at least I've got different avenues that I can try to handle this situation that was coming up. And, you know, dealing dealing with fear, obviously there's probably a million different and probably better ways to deal with it than what I'm talking about. But again, I'm only talking from my own experiences. So that's uh, that's basically my thoughts on fear. <laughs> um, I would say, though, also... Uh, I guess as sort of a a side note to the whole thing is that, you know, you do also always want to remember to believe in yourself. And that really is one of those things where know that you're going to rise to the occasion when things get really ugly. Don't think that you're just going to flip out and panic and you're not going to be able to handle it because you're I've been in enough situations that got pretty scary and pretty real deal and if if I were to think if I were to put myself in that position mentally and say oh man what if this happens what am I going to do I could sit there and worry about it all day long now knowing that I've been put in those positions and knowing how I reacted and how you know if you if you've seen any of the videos from the night of the knockdown uh I'm I'm even kind of a little bit astounded. I must have been in, in some sort of shock a little bit because it definitely seems like I was pretty calm. I mean, I was making jokes and things like that and, and all this sort of stuff. And that was a pretty scary situation. I mean, if I, if I, if I transpose myself to it right now, it, it gives me a little bit of anxiety, right? Um, but you will rise to the occasion. Know that. Believe in it. And uh, keep that as a little bit of ammunition when the fear starts to come in. Be like, you know what? No, I, I got this. I got this. I can, I can handle it. When it comes down to it, I will be.
be able to deal with the situation. So always, always keep that in the back of your head. It's a, a nice little thing to be able to rely on, I think. Uh, and then uh, I think one of the other challenges for sure is commitment. Um, you know, what is your commitment to what you're about to go do? Like, let's say, let's say your dream has always been to sail from Newport to Bermuda, to do that rip across the ocean, cross the Gulf Stream. Dangers be damned. I, I really want to go out and do that. Well, why do you want to do it? Do you really want to do it? Is it something that has been burning a desire in your belly for for a long time? Or is it just that you, you know, read some article about, you know, somebody that did it and had a great experience and it seemed really lovely? Or you, you watched somebody's Instagram and it looked like it was the greatest trip in the world uh, because they only showed you, obviously, the good parts. But um Know that when you do set sail, that commitment has to be pretty much 100%. You really want to be in the mental state and the mindset of we are or I am going to sail from Newport to Bermuda. It's going to take this long. I know what I'm getting into. This is something I absolutely need to do something I want to do, and I am 100% involved in it. I'm 100% good to go for it. And if you're like, well, you know, I'm about 80% there, well, then maybe you ought to just hold off until, until you feel that ticker go all the way up to 100%, because once you do disappear from land, you are 100% committed, whether you like it or not. But if you're mentally only about 80% there, that's going to be an issue. That little 20% of gray area is not going to do you any favors. It's not going to help, and it can lead to some pretty serious problems. So I would say on the commitment uh, aspect of things, you know, it's just one of those things where you, you have to be very real with yourself. You can't lie to yourself because, you know, you might be able to get away with it on land, but once you go out to sea and you are 100% involved with what's going on, uh, then you are 100% committed. And, um, you know, it's something where if, you, if you've been lying to yourself about wanting to do the trip and, and how much you really want to do it, well, that's going to come to fruition the minute you can't see the land anymore and you're headed out there. So just keep that in mind, I think where know, know how much you want to go and do this before you actually uh, untie the lines and, and set sail. <clears throat> and then I think, I think the last one, as far as the challenges go, are, are really just the, uh, the idea of there's no quick exit. There's no pause button. There's no easy out. There's no walking away from it. You know, and, and this kind of ties in with the whole commitment thing, but um, essentially... You you may find yourself on that trip to Bermuda, you know, 500 miles from land, and you might not be enjoying it anymore. And you might think, "Wow, well, I I really think uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to be done with this. I'd like to get picked up." And uh, you know, you you could even call the Coast Guard if you wanted to, but they're not going to come pick you up. Uh, it's one of those things where, again, having the goal of where you're going to go to, how long it's going to take, that's going to help 
with that whole idea of there's no quick exit. Um, also knowing that there might be plan A or plan B, having those things sort of in, in your head will help ease that pain. Um, I think just, just by navigating and doing the proper seamanship, the proper due diligence of keeping your logbook, um, charting it, whether electronically or on an actual paper chart so that you can see progress, that will help out a lot when it comes to the fact that there's no way to just, you know, stop. Um, but it, it can take a toll on your brain if, for whatever reason, the whole idea of, like, I can't get off this boat sort of turns into almost a claustrophobic-esque feeling of, like, I'm trapped. Oh, I can't get off the boat. I can't stop. I'm way too far away. All that sort of stuff. Well, for me, it's it's one of those things. And this one's a little abstract for me, to be honest, because I don't really ever feel that way. Um, you know, obviously I felt like, oh, you know, I'm not, not enjoying this trip. I'm going to head back in. But for the vast majority of my time at sea, the further out I get, the better I feel, the more I feel like the world is my own. Um, but that might not be everybody's case for sure. And the idea of like, oh, okay, I'm, I am stuck out here for the time being, therein lies sort of your salvation. It's for the time being. All you have to do is keep pushing on to get to either your goal or your exit strategy and know that, yes, okay, it might take us a week to get back there, but that's all. In one week, I will be back there as long as I just keep going, keep pushing, and I don't just give up, then I'm actually going to be able to get off of this boat. So it's not a death sentence out there. It's not a life uh, sentence to be you know, on that boat, it's actually just a matter of days or weeks or whatever, depending on how far out you've gone. But eventually you will be able to get out there as long as you keep pushing towards that goal or the subsequent goal that you have uh, given yourself, you know, a plan B, so to speak. Um, ah, so those are some of the challenges. Those are the ones that I have outlined. And I, you know, I know there are plenty more, um, I would say one of the only other big ones that does tap into my head, uh, especially from the last one, is that, you know, breakages, things that break on boats. Um, you're always going to find issues with the boat and all the, you know, things that could go wrong can creep into your head and start to cause anxiety and worry and all that. But essentially with that, that's where due diligence, again, seamanship, doing your daily checks. You know, obviously, you're not going to be able to catch everything. But if you stay on top of things, if you don't, if you don't forego like your daily check for, you know, two, three days, and then all of a sudden something breaks and you're like, oh, man, I would have seen that chafing through. Well, every single day you're checking things over. You're making sure you're walking around with the screwdriver. You're, you're taping things up. You're looking for chafe. That is really the best solution to fight the whole idea. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how good it feels to do a really thorough check around the boat when I'm out at sea. You know, normally, let's say, put you in this scenario. You're out there and you're beating into the wind. It's real sloppy and it's wet and it's, ugh, you, you're just not, 
you're not in the mood to go up there and get super salty and and get splashed and let's say it's even cold too and maybe it's raining um it's not really a time where you want to spend a whole lot of time up on deck well you got to do it. You got to do it. Because if you do it, then all of a sudden you're just going to feel a whole lot better, a whole lot more confidence. And then again, the worry, the anxiety will sort of disappear a little bit. It never completely goes away, but it will subside because you now have physical, you know, uh, visual proof that, yes, okay, everything on the boat is all right. We are dealing with this. And, you know, you can make it easier on yourself. You know, stop beating into the wind. Head downwind for the next half hour. You're going to lose maybe three, four miles tops. Big deal. You're going to be able to stay deck. It's, uh, you're going to be able to stay dry. It's going to be much easier to go around the deck and take a look at everything. And, uh, and then you crack back on. So there's a couple of solutions for that one. Um, and then I guess sort of to, to wrap some of this up, in a little bow as, as far as these topics go just a few other little solutions and i know we've we've kind of hit on some of these as i've been going down this this list of challenges but um some of the things that will i believe or at least definitely help me in the past with a lot of these voyages um you know either before setting sail or mostly it's it's really before setting sail um, but essentially, preparation is is a hundred percent key. Knowing that the boat is ready to go, ready to deal with pretty much anything. You know that old saying of um, "hope for the best, prepare for the worst," or maybe I say that backwards: prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Either way, you want to make sure. You know, obviously, you can't ever be a hundred percent. You know, doubled up on every piece of equipment. You can't have you know, backups for everything. You can't carry a second engine. You know, I've always said the only way to truly be, you know, secure would be to tow an identical boat behind your boat. But even then, if the first boat sinks, then you're still stuck in that situation. <laughs> um, but preparation is key, making sure you're not in a rush. And I've done that where I've prepared for these trips and I've been under the gun and it's no fun. You have to work really hard. You end up being pretty exhausted when you get out there which is not the way you want to be heading in into uh, a big ocean voyage. You know, you want to make sure that, hey, I am feeling very, very confident. The boat is 100% ready. I still have two days before I'm departing to do double checks and triple checks and make sure I've got all the things that I need. You know, making sure you're not just going off of your your memory. You've got your list that you can actually look at and see the things that are crossed off and the things that you, you know, maybe we're like, eh, I'll do that later. Having that preparation for physically for the boat is very good. Also for you as well, you know, you're going to probably be eating not the best food for a long time, depending on how long the trip is and making sure that, you know, you don't just dive into pizza and ice cream for the last week that you're on land um, so that you're actually going out there in your body and everything feels good. I mean, mental health, I think, really um, relates and is part of your physical health. And if I know that if I, you know, when I come off of some of these trips and I get into my sort of post-adventure depression where I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to, and I eat like crap and I'm, I'm, 
you know, not doing the things that I should be doing, I start to just feel mentally pretty exhausted and run down as well. And it's not until I sort of snap out of it and I start eating better and I start doing a little more exercise and all that sort of stuff, then mentally I start feeling better as well. So that has to be taken into consideration uh, as far as the preparation for for the ocean um, goes. And, you know, I guess uh, a second note um, is is really just knowing what you're getting into, knowing, having that commitment to getting out there and really being 100% honest with yourself and your goals and why you want to do it and if you actually want to do it, if it's something that is a desire of yours that really, really... Um, you know, you have to be honest with yourself. That's, that's the only way I can put it. Um, and your, you know, your desire to actually do this, it's a tricky one because there is that allure and I feel it, you know, of like, wow, oh, I'd like to go and sail around the world twice in a row without stopping. Ooh, wouldn't that be just an amazing challenge? Well, yeah, it would, but What's the real desire? Is the desire to just do it so that I can tell people I did it? Or is the desire to do it because I want to actually deal with <laughs> that sort of life for, you know, a year and a half or whatever? And the reality is, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. That's that's That sounds ludicrous. I know I would get out there and be like, what am I doing? What have I done? <laughs> and so know your actual desire. Be very honest with yourself. And, you know, your, your commitment, again, comes into play with that. Are, are you 100% sure and 100% committed to reaching that goal that you're actually trying to reach? Really is one of those things where your brain and your ego and all that stuff and the idea, the romanticism of solo sailing and oceans and all that, Boy, it can play some tricks on you. It can make you think like, boy, this is really what you want to do. I'm telling you, this will be the greatest thing in the world. But you have to return to reality. You have to you have to sort of turn off the daydream, turn off all the great stuff, and make sure that you're also taking into consideration the scary nights in the storm, the days spent becalmed and drifting, the you know, uh, mental anguish of dealing with squalls all night long when all you want to do is go to sleep. The, you know, the, the rashes you might be getting from salt water and, you know, no showers and the smell and, and all the things that come along with it. You know, having, having that reality check definitely will help to make sure, you know, the desire is actually there and not, not just a, fun idea, but something that you really want to do and that you're actually 100% committed to not only enjoying the fruits of being out on the ocean by yourself, but also having to do all the bad, ugly, terrible stuff that you might not want to do and you might not be thinking of when you think about solo sailing. I mean, I know myself, when I think about solo sailing and going out on an ocean passage, I think about lovely days reading in the cockpit i think about staring out at the stars during the night i think about having a a, a sundowner and how good that tastes um <clears throat> i think about journaling in my bunk i i think about all these little things but 
I'm lucky enough to have taken plenty of video and written down enough where I can read about the actual misery <laughs> that comes along with that. And although I have spoken in the past about how I think that some of those highs are only as high because some of the lows are as low as they are. And when you get through those, you get to the peak. And I think there is something to be said about that. But that's sort of a different podcast all in, all in itself. But it's just a reality of knowing that, yeah, it's not all rainbows and butterflies, as Chef Eving used to say down at Bitter End. It's, uh, you're going to have some serious challenges that you have to go through, and you got to make sure that you are ready to overcome those to then enjoy, you know, the good stuff that you keep thinking about. Um, one of the other things that does help out at sea, I think mentally, and we did already hit on this, but it's um, it's keeping busy and getting into a pretty healthy routine. And this this involves, I think, mostly, you know, not getting into, not getting stuck into a situation where you're just listlessly like wandering around the boat and really doing anything. You stop writing in the log book and you stop uh, eating or you stop cooking foods and you just go for like the, all the, you just eat the candy bars and stuff like that and easy. So you don't actually have to cook anything. Um, you stop reading. All you do is sit there and you just think and your brain starts to go crazy. No, it's, it's one of those things where you do have to have those healthy kind of routines that do keep you busy I mean, a typical day on on a passage for me, um, a busy day would be, you know, waking up. I'm gonna I'm gonna make some coffee. I'm gonna take my time with that. I'm gonna go and do the morning checks. Make sure the boat is really running well. I might check the weather um, forecast and such. Um, and then maybe do a couple other little checks down below systems like the bilge pump. Blah blah blah. And then I go from there. I'm going to cook a nice breakfast, some eggs, a little bacon, yeah, maybe even a hash brown. I don't know. I don't know if I have potatoes. But then uh, after that, then I've got a little bit of downtime. I can go and, and I, you know, I can relax, maybe read a little bit, or maybe just go stare at the ocean. I love doing that. Then, you know, we get to about midday, only a couple hours later. Now I'm going to go ahead and, hey, it's a nice, beautiful day. Instead of doing just the GPS, I'm going to go, I'm going to use the sextant. I'm going to pull that out and we're going to, we're going to do a, a sun sight, at least for the latitude. That'll take up some time. It's fun to do when you do it. And, hey, look, oh, I'm only a mile and a half out from my position. That's pretty darn good. I'm proud of myself. This is a good day. Then you go back, you do some more reading, blah, blah, blah. You cook a nice dinner. You have your sundowner. You watch the sunset. You know, maybe you do a podcast. Maybe you take a video, a couple pictures. I don't know. But basically, you're, you're filling your day. You've got these things. Um, you've got a project list going. There might be little things. I, I've spent plenty of time actually down below, like cleaning, you know, or sanding something and then doing a little touch-up paint here and there, depending on the weather, all that sort of stuff. You get the idea. There's a lot of little things that you can do. It's very easy to be like, ugh, I'm not doing that. I'm out at sea. Well, you do have to keep yourself busy. And keeping yourself busy, you know, what's that old saying? Idle's hands are the devil's workshop. I don't think that actually applies 100% there. But if you consider the devil's workshop to be those negative, crazy, anxious uh, worried thoughts, well then, yeah, it does pertain here. So keeping a little bit busy, making sure that you're always trying to improve the boat. I mean, there's the idea of like, 
oh, you know, we're going to rough the boat up, and when we get back to shore, that's when we'll we'll get it all sorted out. Well, you know, how how about look at it this way? Have the boat come back to land looking better than it did when you left it. Ooh, that's a thinker right there. Um, and then I think I think the last thing would be, and I, I talked to my buddy Brian uh, this morning, and he's he's in this situation where he's, you know, essentially uh, just about ready to leave the dock and get out and do some anchoring, do some coastal sailing, all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, he had mentioned, he's like, well, I think, I think trying to relate this to, to everybody who's, who's on the dock and, you know, has the ideas of, you know, going to the Bahamas or, or doing an ocean passage or even just doing some coastal cruising, but, but getting off, untying and going for it, um, would be a great way to end the show off. And I, I think he's right. I can't thank him enough. He's given me a lot of great ideas over the, over the years that I've known him. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you find yourself in that situation and you you keep thinking to yourself, well, we're almost ready. We're almost ready. I'm just going to do this project or I'm just going to do that and then we're going to go. Or, you know, there's, there's a million different reasons to come up with where you can say, well, we're not ready yet. Well, there's always going to be reasons why you can say you're not ready to go. And I mean, shoot, we've been talking for the last hour and a half about a million reasons and scary things and all this sort of stuff that can go on out there and mentally and all this sort of stuff. But really, it is one of those ideas where you can postpone something all you want and eventually it'll be postponed permanently. And I've seen it enough times with enough people where life changes too quickly, too abruptly, and all of a sudden the idea and the open-ended sort of like adventure that you were going to go on, that you've been planning for, all of a sudden abruptly comes to an end. You can no longer do it, whether it be some sort of change in your life or a diagnosis or something like that happens. Well, that day is going to come for everybody. Regardless of who you are, um, it is going to come eventually. And waiting until something, you know, postponing and postponing, you're, you're almost in some ways rolling the dice a little bit of, hey, you know, I'll roll the dice again. We'll give it another year. Well, what happens if in that year something happens and now all of a sudden, your, your, your dice come up snake eyes and suddenly the whole, the whole thing that you've been working towards and, and getting ready for is now no longer on the table. That to me is one of the scariest things in the world. And like I said, we're all headed towards that direction anyway. There's no stopping it. It's inevitable. And no one can know exactly how much time we have between now and then. And so I guess if I'm going to leave anybody with anything, it would just be that, um, you know, instead of th- rolling the dice to see how much more time you have before you take off and you jump into the deep end, so to speak, as far as the sailing goes, why not roll the dice and just go for it? Roll the dice on the adventure. Hey, let's see what happens. Let's see if we can rise to the occasion. 
Let's see what awaits for us over that horizon. Let's see if it's as beautiful as Jerome says it was, <laughs> or if it's as maddening as he said it was. But hey, you know, you come up with some of the plans, you come up with the ideas, you come up with these dreams, follow them, go for it. What's the worst that's going to happen? Well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but the vast majority worst that's going to happen is you're going to come back in having learned something, having experienced something, whether it's good, whether it's bad, it's an experience and it's going to teach you. I mean, even if, even if you set sail, you get out there and it's miserable and it's horrible. And you think to yourself, what was I thinking? I'm an idiot. I was seasick the whole time. It was terrible. Uh, I hate it. I'm going to write Jerome a really bad email. Well, at least you know. And you can move on. You're no longer in that situation where you're like, oh, I want to go. I want to do this. I want to try it. But I'm a little bit hesitant. I'm a little bit scared. Uh, you go out there and do it and give it a shot. Even if you don't like it, at least you know you can move on. You can go from that limbo, which I think mentally can be one of the most, um, I was going to say annoying, but devastating, I think where you, you know you want to do it, but you're, you're just not ready. That's sort of the thing. Is you, you just go for it, and you're going to find out either way, which is a good thing because, hey, you might find you're the next solo nonstop circumnavigator. Who knows? Who knows? The world is out there, and it's time to go and find out. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. Hopefully it wasn't too much crazy rambling. Uh, hopefully it was helpful in, in some way, shape or form. And I guess to, to say it one more time, you know, mental health, uh, it's, it's definitely something serious. It affects a lot of people. And if it's something that, uh, you yourself are struggling with my advice as a complete, uh, non-doctor or anything like that would be just to talk to somebody about it. There we go. All right. Have a great day, and hopefully you enjoyed the podcast, and we will see you next time.